Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the American Centrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. In each episode of this series, my guest and I will discuss a work of literature set primarily in Chicago. For this episode, we will be discussing the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks, and my guest today is Adrienne Brown. Adrian Brown is Associate Professor in the Departments of English and Race, Diaspora and Indigeneity at the University of Chicago and the Director of Arts and Public Life, a hub for artistic exploration, expression and exchange that centers people of color and fosters neighborhood vibrancy on Chicago's South Side. She is the co-editor with Valerie Smith of the volume Race and Real Estate uh, in 2015 and the author of The Black Skyscraper, Architecture and the Perception of Race, winner of the 2018 First Book Prize from the Modernist Studies Association. Her latest book, The Residential is Racial, A Perceptual History of Homeownership, will be published by Stanford University Press in early 2024. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so today we're going to discuss the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks. And before we actually turn to talking about the poetry itself, I thought it would be useful for you uh, to just fill in for listeners who might not be aware of Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, who she is. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. She was like poet laureate of Illinois at some point in my childhood. And she seems she's one of these people that for me was like always there. She was never not there, Gwendolyn Brooks. But um, that's not necessarily the case for people outside of Chicago. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about her. Sure, I'm happy to. So Gwendolyn Brooks, yeah, she lived most of her life in Chicago. She wasn't born in Chicago, but she moves to Chicago as a child um, and lives there until her death in 2000. She was born in 1917. Um, so a long life and a, a long life filled with, with poetry. And for Almost all of her life, poetry was really central to her life. She started writing poems as a teenager. She started being published as a poet as a teenager. I believe she sent her earliest poems to the Chicago Defender around 13 or 14 years old. Um, and so, like, wow. really young was writing. <laughs> you know, she's been a poet since she was 13. Um, her dad really encouraged her to write, didn't he? I think so. That's right. Um, I mean, I think her household was, a, you know, really supportive of the work that she was doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she grew up in Chicago in a really amazing time where there was just a flourishing of arts and culture during uh, what is now called the Chicago Renaissance as a way to kind of claim, reclaim Chicago's role in being a, a hub for black culture that is, you know, Harlem and Chicago, there there are a lot that are in common about their renaissances, but you know Chicago has its own its own kind of scene. And um, Brooks uh, was definitely raised in a, a kind of amazing literary culture. So she she ends up attending what is now a pretty legendary writers workshop at the Southside Community Arts Center, taught by Inez Cunningham Stark, uh, who's a white woman who ran this this workshop and. People would stop by. Guests would come by. Richard Wright was a part of that scene. Langston Hughes would come through on, in that scene. And so just, again, just imagine, like, as a <laughs> as a young writer, right, that this is your everyday milieu to be in conversation or to have, you know, just kind of around you, walking through your neighborhood, yeah. um, some of the most important writers of the 20th century. I was going to say these, like, serious heavyweights of American literature. Yeah, it's it's pretty astounding. Um, and then to have a you know the Chicago Defender, uh, which was a legendary black newspaper, was really famous partly because of its political coverage, and it was a newspaper that black Pullman porters would take down south, and uh, so it was really important in terms of spreading news across the country. Black newspapers were so important to the early twentieth century, um, but the Chicago De Defender covered everything, and you know including the arts. So. To think about their commitment to poetry, I think is really um, interesting too. So she starts writing at a, a very young age. Her first collection of poetry, A Street in Bronzeville, is uh, published by Harper. She ends up having a very long relationship with Harper's until she leaves Harper's in the 50s um, and the 60s and starts publishing with black presses. But before then, The Street in Bronzeville is her breakthrough collection. Uh, Richard Wright is really helpful in terms of getting her that contract and putting her in touch and, and advocating for the book. He wrote a review for the book, one of the first readers reports, really singing the praises of a street in Bronzeville. 
And Shreen Bronswell, I mean, I think you can tell from the title, the title is very helpful in trying to understand what Brooks's poetic project was in this period, which was to really talk about life in Bronzeville. Bronzeville, I can talk about Bronzeville maybe um, after I talk about Brooks, but um, Bronzeville was the name for the Black Belt in Chicago, basically only place in the city around that time when the um, in the 30s um, and the 40s where African-Americans could live really um, constrained to a few blocks on the south side. And so um, in the midst of the Great Migration, Bronzeville gets very crowded. And a lot of people are thinking about Bronzeville, pointing to it as a place of blight, as a problem. But for Brooks, Bronzeville is just always an everyday place where people live, where there are great things happening, there are sad things happening, there's tragedy, there's boringness, there's ordinariness. And you you see that across Brooks's work, where she's really trying to sit with the spectrum of what it means to live in a place. And really in that kind of middle, middle space, right? And Shreen Bronzeville are these poems that are thinking about what life is like in Bronzeville in simple, but also really um, deep ways. It's a really successful collection. And she, from then on, like she is established as <laughs> Gwendolyn Brooks and kind of continues to publish regularly through her death. And so I could go into all the different pieces of, of her very long career, but I mean, I think it's an important thing to know about Brooks is that her first, from her first collection on forward, she is a force and a voice. She wins the Pulitzer or the Nobel. I think it's the Pulitzer. Pulitzer. Thank yeah. you. She wins the Pulitzer uh, Prize. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the first black woman to win the Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, that is a huge deal. When she wins the Pulitzer in the early 50s, she's published two co collections of poetry at that point, A Street in Bronzeville, uh, which is followed up by um, the Anniad, um, Annie Allen, which contains this very famous long poem called The Anniad, which is a play on the Aeneid following this main character called Annie Allen. So Anniad instead of the Aeneid. And after, I mean, she's already pretty well established as a, as a poet by then, but when she wins the Pulitzer, she, she kind of catapults to national fame at that point. Um, maybe another thing to say about Brooks is, especially in her early career, her first three, three or so books of poetry, and she's also really known for form, for being attentive to form, ballad, odes, sonnets, um, that um, she's really thinking about form and playing with form and takes form very seriously. And so this is also, I think, part of, what she becomes well known for, kind of thinking about black life and culture, uh, but also using the tools of the Western lyric to to think about what it means to give form to people, life and experience. So I'm glad you mentioned form, because one of the things that I thought was interesting about rereading a lot of her poems in preparation for this um, podcast is that, as you said, like early on, she's using very specific forms like sonnet and so on. And while she moves away from those specific forms later on or as her career or progresses, it seems to me she becomes more formally interesting at the same time in some ways that she becomes, she becomes so it's probably because she just becomes more adept at using form. And although she's not necessarily writing a sonnet or a whatever, she's like, the, the, the intricacy of how she's using technique and form becomes really something and, and like really uh, one of the things that really makes her a great poet in the, when we you know have the advantage point now where we look back over this huge body of work. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Like um, that no matter what form that she's using, she's always so attentive and plugged into how the words on the page are are producing propulsion, asking you to dwell for a little bit of time, um, asking you to get to know characters, but also kind of keeping you a bit distant from them. You know, she's just always so conscious. And, you know, you never kind of think with a poem of hers, oh, that word choice feels strange. Like everything just feels no, so no. of a piece yeah. with her. And it's always really verbal. It's really it's really sonic um, poetry. I think she like the sounds of 
of words like when she's using alliteration there's like almost like a, some of her poems there's like schemes to the alliteration she's using um that certain sounds keep reappearing in different places and like and just like what it sounds like when you hear it out loud is really something um in addition to everything else yeah she's a great reader of her own work too so mm-hmm. um, oh, man, if folks yeah. have a chance they should go listen to her read some of the poems um they're amazing you know just hearing her read is is um truly special yeah i agree with that as well so you mentioned her first collection a street in bronzeville and and we're also going to talk about um a later poem in the mecca which is a really long one of her possibly her longest poem um maybe not as long as is the is um um annie allen it's hard well anyway it doesn't matter (laughs) it's long that's my point um and it seems to me that these two, like talking about these two, talking about Bronzeville or street in Bronzeville and the Mecca at the same time, or at least initially as an introduction is useful because they're both, as you were saying earlier, poems where she's looking at densely populated places where lots of different people are just living on top of each other. And she's taking these people's lives seriously. And she's trying to tell She's not just writing a lyric poem about these lives. She's telling a story about these lives. Um, in mm-hmm. one of her, talking about one of her most famous poems, which is neither of these that, that we're talking about at the moment, um, We Real Cool. At some point, there's an interview with her or a reading maybe where that you can find on YouTube where she says like, you know, she saw these guys standing outside a pool hall and she wondered how they saw themselves. And I think like, that's a really good way of thinking about almost all all of her poems it's you see a poet wondering how people see themselves and it's partly what she's doing in in a street in bronzeville and in um, the collection and in uh, in the mecca the, this poem that takes place in in one enormous building and that she kind of sees all of life happening in these places and wants to try and do a, a kind of justice to the emotional lived experience of those lives um but i wonder whether with that in mind, you can say a little bit more about, about what Bronzeville is at first. And then perhaps more importantly, as we turn to a poem, um, the Mecca itself. Sure. Yeah. One, one of the ways I talk about Gwendolyn Brooks is that she's like, um, such a canny observer of observation. Um, Mm. so many of her poems are about watching other people watch, uh, which is such a hard, mechanics to pull off but she's so (laughs) good at it and then observation really becomes for so many of her poems what she's actually trying to track or trace and how you see people and how other people see other people seeing but yeah i mean i think and the stakes for that in terms of understanding bronze world were quite high um, especially in the first half of the 20th century right this i mean before talking about bronzeville just thinking about the ways that for instance a field like sociology went about trying to observe black life, right? Was very, they had a very different kind of eye for seeing places like Bronzeville or Harlem um, or any kind of black belt part of a city where the idea was, well, what's wrong with these places, right? There's so much, there's so much pain. There's so much poverty. Um, Look at how these people live, right? Which is so much of the thread of how photographers and sociologists we're thinking about black neighborhoods in this period um, and thinking about, you know, the ways of studying black life at large uh, was this kind of very harsh sociological lens. Um, and someone like Richard Wright really, you know, tr- embraces that lens and tries to work with it. So, you know, Wright is a mentor to Brooks and a, a helpful figure, but she also is in some ways writing against and back to to write to to find a different way of thinking about black life that isn't about only about extreme violence isn't only about a certain kind of hyper realism and you know Wright was very close to some members of the University of Chicago sociology department and he writes the introduction to this major work called Black Metropolis and so Brooks is writing a very different way. So to understand that, again, it helps to understand the history of Bronzeville. So before before the 20th century or before the early 20th century, there was a black population in Chicago. It was was quite small. And um, they lived in many parts of the city, which was true in all northern metropolises. There may have been small neighborhoods or blocks where there were primarily 
black residents. But really, until the beginning of the Great Migration, before that, blacks are largely living all over cities, right? There wasn't such a panic about black residential life and where blacks would live. They were kind of treated the ways that any anyone who's considered non-white would be treated, right? If you're an Irish immigrant or an immigrant from Eastern European Europe, you know, all all of those immigrants and recent migrants to the city would be kind of treated as tolerated, um, uh, but kind of mixed up within the city. That starts to change after the Great Migration. Um, more and more African Americans start moving to the north, starting around 1917, 18, 19, um, both because of World War I. Um, there is a need for more labor to power factories, to do work in the north. So there's a concentrated effort to recruit blacks um, by northern industrial firms and manufacturers to move to the north. There's also, of course, great violence happening in the South uh, post-Reconstruction with the rise of Jim Crow, really at the end of the 19th into the 20th century. New laws are passed, more restrictions are passed, lynching is rising. Um, this idea that, that Black life is uh, dangerous in the South really starts to become well and well more and more established. So um, blacks are moving north for opportunity, for economic opportunity, but also um, to escape the specific kind of violences that are happening um, in the Jim Crow South. But they would face different kinds of violences in the north, if not so much the explicit lynching, certainly other forms of oppression, exploitation, being paid less for work, and in terms of housing, um, increasingly being constricted to living only in certain square blocks of the city. So in New York, famously, that's what happened in Harlem. Harlem originally, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, is not a black neighborhood, um, and it becomes one quite quickly between 1910 and 1920. The same thing happens in Bronzeville and Chicago, between 1910 and 1920, you see this huge uptick of, of blacks moving to the city. And when they move to the city, they can only really live in Bronzeville. Um, it's the only place that they can rent and sometimes own, but mostly rent. Um, and you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people moving to the cities every year. And there's not new housing being built in Bronzeville. And the housing that exists in Bronzeville is also it's older housing. It's falling apart. Um, so people are are carving up old houses and turning them into kitchenette buildings, which Brooks writes about in Street in Bronzeville. It becomes really famous, even more famous when Lorraine Hansberry writes about the kitchenette form um, in A Raisin and Sun. So, you know, these kind of difficult living conditions, housing conditions, difficult economic conditions are, are the conditions on, of black life in Bronzeville. But it's also a place of innovation and excitement, right? Like all music is changing, right? All uh, all these blues and jazz forms are colliding and and meeting each other and becoming something different. Um, there's this place, there's an avenue within um, Bronzeville called the Stroll, which is known for movies and theaters, and uh, where everyone who is anyone will walk and want to be seen. And going on that street itself is a form of entertainment because everyone's dressed up. And and Brooks writes about the Stroll as well. Um, so there's all these this literary innovation that's happening, political innovation, right? The communist party, Garveyism, um, you have all of this interchange of different kinds of political philosophies that are also happening in Bronzeville. So uh, this kind of conditions of crowding and density are also producing this proliferation of art and culture and new thinking and new life. Um, so, you know, you can really track that in, in Brooks's poetry, right? Thinking about all of these things that are happening in Bronzeville. I wonder whether on that note, Kitchenette Building, the first poem in a street in Bronzeville, might be the best place mm -hmm. to to start looking at one of her poems because it really it really is a poem that reflects some of the dynamics that you were just talking about. I don't know if if you want to read the poem first and then we could talk about it. Yeah, sure, happy to do that. Kitchenette Building. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray dream makes a giddy sound, not strong, like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes, its white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter or sing an aria down these rooms? 
even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin? We wonder, but not well, not for a minute, since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it. Thank you. I mean, the, it, this is one of those like talking about form as well and the way that form becomes part of the means of thinking about and thinking through the ideas of the poem. It's, um, obviously, people listening can't see the form on the page, but it, it starts with a three line stanza, has a quatrain after that, and then two more three line stanzas. It's, it's basically a sonnet as well and um, has the some of the movements of a of a sonnet and that last set the last terset i guess is the is the term the last three lines also you mentioned already a raisin in the sun kind of um one of the key uh moments in in a raisin in the sun is people racing to the um to the bathroom when it's free and it kind of echoes that where where do you usually start when you're thinking about this poem uh, great question. I mean, I usually start with this first line. Um, we are the things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, um, grayed in and gray, which I always think of as a reference to all of these maps that were being done to study Bronzeville, mm-hmm. um, especially works like Black Metropolis, just all of these kind of deep studies of, of, and, you know, redlining spaces, you know, just these studies of Chicago and Chicago is known in this period as like the study, the city that you study um, Mm -hmm. to learn about how cities work. Right. So it already has this kind of um, social scientific largesse at this time. So when I read that we are the things of dry hours and involuntary plan graded in gray, it's already the sense that, okay, you might know Bronzeville as this kind of site, black site on a map. And, and so it's this kind of establishment of this we inside of this kind of abstract form of mapping and constriction that the poem then continues to just continue to use thematically, right? Um, this kind of um, tension between constriction and having to rush through and be pushed through things, but also these glimmers of opportunities for something else that are always interrupting or disrupting the the regulatory plan um yeah 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 and it's interesting that the, the first word is we like there's a demand for identity here right at the beginning even before mm-hmm. you find out about all these you know social scientific things plans um, political plans race you know racing to kind of uh confine people we are already there first mm-hmm. staking a claim um, as a as a an identity claim, and I like that in the in the third stanza where even if we were willing to let it in is a really interesting line to me. There's a lot of conflict and, and ambivalence in that line, like it being the dream, you know, the dream that's that's yeah. rising through this all these smells of um, of the previous. So there's a mix of of, of smells and sounds really in the. Um, Mm-hmm. In the previous stanza, all the all the cooking and the garbage and and everything, and like even if we were to willing to let it in, like we're we're not willing to let the dream in right. through all of this. Absolutely, yeah. It's like the sense of um, uh, like we can't even wonder, but even if we start to yeah. wonder, we have to stop wondering, right? And you know yeah. what happens to that we? I think that also plays back to this, like what is what is the we capable of, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the kitchenette is the space where lots of families and individuals live together, sharing bathrooms, sharing space, right? This idea that you have this unit of of consciousness, right? This we that is moving through together and these kind of p- possibilities of like, well, what if the we, what if we could think in these ways? And then kind of this uh, continually shutting, shutting down of those possibilities. But you're right. I think it's really important to um, pause on the, even if we were willing to let it in, um, it's not as if <laughs> um, <laughs> dreaming is impossible, right? It's an agential yeah. choice, right? To try to get through the day, right? Like dreaming itself can be painful uh, or yeah. it has its own penalties, right? Well, that's that's like one of the big things that happens in a raisin. I know we're not here to talk about a raisin in the sun, but like that's yeah. one of the big things that, that happens in that play is, is that, 
that idea, like that, even if we were willing to let it in, being dramatized through generations and through the through the um, the possibility of escaping the redlining and being es- escaping the being hemmed in um, by mm-hmm. these involuntary plans. Yeah, and you kind of see the the urgency of just getting through the day, right? Which propels so much of this poem, right? That dream yeah. doesn't even sound doesn't sound strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man, right? All these things that you know, you have to race to the bathroom, you have to race to work, you have to race home, right? You have to push through all these smells as you're in sights and sounds, right? And um, this idea that even, you know, like, it's just dream. It doesn't say like a dream yeah. of this or a dream of that, right? Like even this idea. Yeah. Of, and again, thinking about Bronzeville, this place where all of these political projects were stewing, right? Like, whichever way the dream goes, right? Be it in, in a reinvestment in property, right? Or something more radical. None of that gets worked out, right? It's all held under this <laughs> pretty generic term of dream, but feels so fraught at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been, while you've been saying that, I've just been looking at that first line of the last stanza, we wonder, period, but not well, exclamation point, not for a minute, and another exclamation point. And I mean, there's just so much happening in that line. And like, it's the dream and the the thinking about the dream and that we, that first word of the poem are still trying to push through even there and just getting mm-hmm. thwarted even before the, the like physical, even before the physical necessity of number fives out of yeah. the bathroom and we hustle to get in it. We wonder, and there's like this big pause, but not well, almost like, castigating yourself for not being able to wonder well like there is all this culture happening there's all these things we could be doing but oh god the bathroom doors just open i gotta go yeah and when she reads this poem there are recordings of her reading it it's got such a like cheery whimsy way she reads that Mm. line like you know she really does the explanation exclamation points uh, but not well, not for a minute. She kind of yeah. does kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it, it, it's so jarring because the poem, there's a way that you could read this poem as so bleak. Right. But when she yeah. reads it, it's really about, it's not, it doesn't sound sad or it doesn't sound like lost opportunities. She kind of captures the ways that, you know, even the rhythm of the poem, right. It kind of keeps you moving and moving and moving mm-hmm. and the shortness of those, of those lines. Right. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute. <laughs> like yeah. even within that, right. You can't really dwell. You have to keep moving and going and going. There's nowhere to really sit within the poem because the poem is constantly pushing you um, with the way that it's constructed. And so when you, she reads it, you can really hear um, the ways that that kind of propulsiveness kind of takes over as, as you kind of sit with how the words unfurl. Yeah. Propulsiveness is a, is a really useful way of thinking about a, a lot of her poems i think and i and it, when i was rereading in the mecca yesterday one of the things that i was really it's it's a long poem it's a good like 30 or so page long poem and it has a even stronger sense of narrative a lot of her poems have a sense of narrative even when they're really short they're very they're very narrative like story driven poems i suppose because they're so focused as you were saying earlier on characters and and characters watching and characters watching how they themselves watch and that kind of that constant self-consciousness about things and not in a not in a like oh should I do this or that kind of way but just people being self-aware I think is maybe a better term for it mm-hmm. um and in the mecca is just like a relentlessly propulsive poem that just constantly is bringing you forward and and does so again as we were talking about a little bit earlier in a really formally interesting or informally interesting ways more than one the first line of the poem is basically just on a page by itself now the way of the mecca was on this wise but before we talk about this poem too much i suppose we should explain to people the mecca which is a building with a pretty interesting history Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So um, the Mecca was um, people who often think about this poem or misread or misunderstand that the Mecca, they think that the Mecca was um, a public housing complex. It it was not. It was built in the 1890s, in 1891, right before or in advance of the 
uh, Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair in 1893, with this expectation that there were going to be lots of people in Chicago moving to Chicago, which was true. There's also a recession coming. Um, so some of the kind of ideas of what the 1890s were going to be in Chicago did not fully come true. But um, the Mecca was built in anticipation of a kind of boom in Chicago. And the time was built as a kind of state of the art uh, apartment complex. And by the time that Brooks is writing about it in the late 50s, uh, well, it had already come down. Um, so, and so this poem is, is a historical, historic poem because she's writing about this building that no longer exists by the time she's writing this poem and she's remembering it. So by the, um, by the 40s and early 50s, um, the Mecca had been, hadn't been repaired. It was falling apart. Um, the people who lived there were probably the most hard on their luck. And there was a pretty, I would say, exploitative profile written about the Mecca that was published in Harper's uh, by this figure, this man, John Bartlow Martin, who kind of did these sociological sketches of space and wrote a pretty, I think, a pretty racist and brutal portrait of the Mecca. Um, he kind of starts the article with like, I, I come into like this beautiful city downtown and descend into the depths of Bronzeville into this apartment complex where all of these freaks and weirdos live there. It's basically the tenor of the piece. And the Mecca ended up becoming a site of struggle around urban renewal. Um, so um, IIT, which was uh, Illinois Institute of Technology, uh, was looking um, to build a new campus. And the Mecca was on the land that they wanted, and there were huge fat battles. And there were still residents in the Mecca who were fighting to keep their space and say, look, if we just invest in this space, it will be a nice place to live, right? But uh, basically, IIT made it so, you know, the Mecca was not improved to better make the case for um, tearing it down. And they eventually won, IIT won. And what was built on the land that the Mecca had once Occupy was not just a campus, but it was the kind of crown jewel of the campus ended up going there, which was designed by Mies van der Rohe, who, you know, after World War II, did some very important commissions um, in the U.S. And he did a couple of buildings on IIT and most famously the, the crown building, which was the architectural school ends up getting built right on where the Mecca is. And so you couldn't really ask for a better juxtaposition of this kind of old building inhabited by black people swept away to produce this crown jewel of architectural modernism right on top of where that building had been. There's, there's two things that occurred to me that, that are interesting about these facts. One, one of which is to do explicitly with the poem, but the other is that, you know, this whole history repeats itself uh, again in Chicago, but on the west side, when when the University of Illinois Chicago decides to um, expand the campus on the west side, and they and they mm. blow out a whole neighborhood there, what like maybe like twenty twenty five years after this, like not that long later, it's like they you know, they learned a lesson on how you do it and did it all over again. Absolutely. Um, um, again, to like poorer, you know, working class populations, but the poem itself, after the line that I already read, that appears on. So the poem opens with a, a series of, of quotations. It then has a tribute to a, a group of people, the um, so fellow um, writers. And then the line on its own on a page, now the way of the Mecca was on this wise. And then the next page starts with a three-line stanza, sit where the light corrupts your face. Mies van der Rohe retires from grace and the fair fables fall, which is a real, to my mind, a real tone setter. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing... So there's that command at the yes. beginning. You know, we, the, the poem we just talked about, um, Kitchenette, 
it's like we it's like it's, you know the the this the poem the people of the poem are speaking for themselves and and demanding their identity and this one is like the poet is telling you the reader to sit down and pay attention to what's going to happen here it's a very different absolutely tone. and even before that that line the now now the way of the mecca was on this wise mm. um it is it's a line it's a revised line from i think matthew um from the bible now the birth of jesus christ was on this wise um mm-hmm. so we're already in all of these registers by the time you get to the first line of the poem, you have these quotes, you have these tributes, you have this line that's a biblical reference, and then you have this kind of um, command uh, (laughs) that definitely feels like a fable, um, even as she says, this is Mm -hmm. where the fair fables fall, right? She's already in this kind of fable-like language from the start. Yeah. So as I said, this is essentially a narrative poem in the Mecca. And and we first learn about Sally Smith, and she's going to end up spending a lot of the poem looking for her child who's gone missing. And and a lot of the meeting of other residents happens through her knocking on their doors and asking whether they've seen her daughter. Um, and even just the way she's introduced is is really interesting. S. Smith is Mrs. Sally. Mrs. Sally hies home to Mecca, hies to marvelous rest, ascends the sick an influential stare. Um, so she's being almost introduced by the name on her, you know, like on yeah. her door or on the mailbox or whatever. Yeah. And already the sense of we're going to move past that, right? S. Smith yeah. becomes Mrs. Sally and then she has a family, right? Like all these figures that I think in the John Barlow Martin piece, right? Remain these mm-hmm. kind of grotesque sketches become something else for, for Brooks. Um, they become, you know, uh, lyric subjects, for her. And um, even though, you know, she's not sitting in their interiors either. Right. It's not like she's saying, let's go from the outside and we're going to really understand Mrs. Sally and everything that she does and why she does it. Right. Like that's not her move. Right. It's really like, how can I bring this world to life for the reader um, and kind of, again, capture the rhythms and, and the experience without, you know, not, also trying to exploit her interior or extract it in some kind of overknowing way either. Right. Which is kind of a, the amazing dance that she plays. Yeah. It's it's a thing that it's a thing that she, it's really difficult to articulate exactly what she is doing here because she's doing it so well and so carefully and with such, she's got this like huge empathy. um, But at the same time, as you say, is not, is not exploiting that in order to like dwell in someone's perspective or to cast herself into, you know, I'm not, she's not trying to see their minds or be inhabit their minds. She's just trying to take seriously the fact of uh, that they have a perspective. Yes. That's well put. Yeah. She's not a melodramatic writer. Um, it's like the word you would never use to describe, you know, and this poem is a, (laughs) ends up being quite a dark, heavy poem Mm -hmm. where, you know, we find out that her, that Pepita who, um, Mrs. Smith has been looking for is, you know, by the end of the poem, you find that she's been murdered by a fellow resident and you find her body under the bed for such a macabre. And, you know, the poem never feels macabre. It never feels, you know, if you told someone that that's what this poem is about, and then they read it, they would expect a very different kind of poem. Yeah. Um, but the poem is filled with, you know, it's it's filled with, like Kitchenette Building, it's filled with mm-hmm. whimsy and, and joy and movement and curiosity and just trying to kind of move through all of these people and get to know the building and understand its rhythms in a way that doesn't feel, <laughs> that in some ways can be odd when you know where where it's going and where it ends. Yeah, it's such a it's such a masterful work in tone in that way. Yeah, because it also one of the things that struck me again, like rereading yesterday, was um, that she goes around and there's these there's the people, the people who know her, know Pepita. Nobody has seen this kid, but the, but they're like, no, I haven't seen her. And then and then you get into kind of some of their preoccupations. You get the people who have no idea who she is and what she's talking about, the people who don't want to have anything to do with it. There's this whole kind of uh, mix of attitudes among all these people going on. And that's part of, I suppose, what what makes it, I mean, paradoxically, it's what makes it both that have that darkness and that 
macabre thing to it that like people are both too preoccupied yeah. to care or they care but 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 don't have anything they can do or whatever it's not like oh we're all in this together as a that's right. community but but we're not not in this as a community right. <laughs> and and the it, you know to the degree to which the the death of this child is is an afterthought to so many people even to people who who care about it and it's it, there's just a very there's a complex portrait going on through this simple potentially melodramatic plot line yeah she was very careful to not romanticize community mm-hmm. um and to, again which you might think is one reaction right to this attempt to fetishize black space brooks never goes she never goes the opposite way that she's being pushed she <laughs> always kind of sits with the complexity of what it what is all of its highs and lows, but mostly it's in-betweens, right? Which is about, well, I don't have time to pay attention to this, or I'm just moving through this space, right? Um, and what does it mean to try to capture that, that kind of that kind of hurriedness or in-betweenness, right? That is so much a part of what it means to just live every day, um, which she is, again, I think so great at doing. Yeah. I'm wondering whether I'm just like skimming through the poem at the moment and wondering whether there's like a, a particular particular parts that you that are particular interest to you like one thing before, before or while you have because I've, I've sort of ambushed you with that question um <laughs> uh one of the things that really i think is very interesting is that it's even again like for a poem that you inevitably have to describe as it's about a woman looking for her her child who's gone missing and then finding her dead under under someone's bed at the end um but you know, you're a good dozen pages into the poem before she realizes that her daughter's missing. Mm-hmm. She herself is so preoccupied. That's right. Um, and it all comes in, it comes in this all caps stanza, one line stanza, suddenly counting noses, or two line stanza, suddenly counting noses, Mrs. Sally sees no Pepita, where Pepita be? And then there's like suddenly this, the the propulsion that we were um, talking about earlier really yeah. um, shifts up a gear. It starts. It, it's a propulsive poem to that point, but now it becomes a really like a frenzied propulsion. Formally, it changes and everything as well. But I I wondered whether mm-hmm. there's other places in this poem that you thought are are particularly worth shining a light on for this discussion. Yeah, this is hard because they all are so amazing. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's, you know, finding a piece because it's all part of this whole to like bear down. I'm looking at the parts of the poem that I have most marked up and see if it will help <laughs> um, help me find a place where we might go. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, the end of the poem is actually pretty amazing. That last lot, that last page of the poem is pretty I don't know, if, but you know, I don't know if I'll spoil the end. Um, I mean, there's a line, maybe we, there's this part where there's this character who kind of recur, well, a lot of them recur and come back and forth in the poem, but there's this figure, Alfred, who um, ends up getting, taking more and more space up in the poem as it goes, who is in the Mecca and clearly has, you know, is interested in the world and is this kind of proto-scholar who's living there and you kind of, he's, he's one of the kind of keen observers within the Mecca. And so um, there's a couple of stanzas where you kind of sit with him looking um, where it says, no, Alfred has not seen Pepita Smith, but he, and then in parentheses, who might have been an architect. So we're going to kind of call back to the Mies van der Rohe at the beginning of the poem um, can speak of Mecca Firm arms surround disorders, bruising ruses and small hells, small semi-heavens, hug barbarous rhetoric, built of buzz, coma, and petite pell-mells. No, Alfred has not seen Pepita Smith, but he, in parentheses, who might have been a poet king, can speak superbly of the line of Leopold, and I believe that's Leopold's um, Sangor, the great negritude poet. Um, the line of Leopold is thick with blackness and scriptural drops and rises. The line of Leopold is busy with, with 
controls of royal rage and conditional pardon and with refusals of mothballs for outmoded love. And then you get this kind of whole kind of take on Senghor and negritude in the middle of this poem. Um, so it kind of gives you a sense of like the way that Pepita, looking for Pepita propels the story. And you get, I love that line of small hells and small semi-heavens. Cause I think that's exactly mm-hmm. in some ways is um, the poem in a nutshell, right? Trying to move through both of those, the small hells and the small semi-heavens of the poem. It's a real, like, it's a real intensifying, I think, of the same idea from Kitchenette building as well, which is one of the things that I think is really interesting about about looking at those poems next to each other, that you see this poem from early on in Gwendolyn Brooks's career, and then this one, you know, later, and she's still interested in the same things, but is is looking at them in, in more complex ways in some ways and looking at them in different ways. And it's really exciting, I think, just as a basic thing to see a poet revisiting things again and again but always finding new new material out of the same attitudes and the same mm-hmm. way of looking at things yeah yeah it's great and then you know just finding finding new powerful ways again this other description firm arms around disorders like what mm. a great <laughs> line right to describe what does it mean to speak of this place to have firm arms ar- surround disorders what a line. And again, you could also think that as a, <laughs> as a kind of meta line about her own poetry. Oh, for right? sure. The way that form itself is such an important um, structure for her, right? To be able to kind of have us think with these disorders, you need these kind of firm arms of the, of the formal apparatus. Um, so, she, you know, there's often these kind of, <laughs> uh, all these things that are happening within her line where she's thinking about, what's happening in the poem, but also kind of reflecting on what the poetic itself has to do with anything. Mm-hmm. Actually, that makes a nice segue to perhaps the last pair of poems that, to look at so that we don't outstay our welcome in our listeners' ears, I suppose. <laughs> um, that um, the the two poems, the, um, the Chicago Picasso and The Wall, which are, are both presented as dedications what I think is interesting to think about them and and why I said it was a nice segue is like, it's, it's Brooks. Both of these poems are Brooks reflecting in different ways on the meaning of art itself. They're, they're poems that are explicitly about artworks, about specific artworks, each of them dedicated at the same time. I don't actually know the, um, the history of the, of the poem, the wall, whether that was something that she was commissioned to write or whether she wrote it on her own, but she was commissioned to write the Chicago, the Chicago Picasso. Mm -hmm. And they say different things, not entirely compatible things about art, but also not, they're not arguing with each other, these poems either. Mm -hmm. And I think that they show kind of the complexity of her thinking, I suppose. And um, I don't know if maybe (laughs) we, should I read one and then you read the other one or we'll read one. Why don't I read the Chicago Picasso we can talk about it, and then you could read the wall. I've given you the longer one. You'll notice. Um, <laughs> no and, problem. <laughs> and uh, and then we can talk about that and kind of and pull them together, and that'll be a nice way to finish round off our discussion. The Chicago Picasso, August fifteenth, nineteen sixty seven. It starts with a quotation: Mayor Daly tugged a white ribbon, loosing the blue percale wrap. A hearty cheer went up as the covering slipped off the big steel sculpture that looks at once like a bird and a woman. That's from the Chicago Sun-Times. And then in parentheses underneath, it says, Seiya Ozawa leads the symphony, the mayor smiles, and 50,000 see. Does man love art? Man visits art, but squirms. Art hurts. Art urges voyages. And it's easier to stay at home than ice beer ready. In common rooms, we belch or sniff or scratch, are raw. But we must cook ourselves and style ourselves for art, who is a requiring courtesan. We squirm. We do not hug the Mona Lisa. We may touch or tolerate an astounding fountain or a horse and rider, at most another lion. Observe the tall cold of a flower, which is as innocent and as guilty, as meaningful and as meaningless as any other flower in the Western field. There's an enormous amount going on in this poem. It's a really short one. One of the things I like about it is I think that it 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 kind of says something about art that I often think, which I'm probably not supposed to admit because, you know, I'm a writer and a university lecturer and everything else. But I often find myself thinking, 
I'd rather just stay at home and drink a beer than go and watch art. (laughs) Um, And this Picasso statue is an interesting one because like basically Picasso just told Chicago, I'm giving you this statue and, you know, who's going to say no to that? And, um, you know, Mayor Daly, who it's hard to talk about Chicago literature of a certain era without one Mm. or the other of a Mayor Daly coming up, makes it about him (laughs) Um, it's this huge sculpture of public art. She mentions in that, towards the end of that stanza that's, that talks about not hugging the Mona Lisa, which is an interesting echo of this strong arms around the disorder. You put strong arms around the disorder, you have to hug it, but the Mona Lisa you don't hug because um, it, it's not disorder and it's art. She says, we may touch or tolerate an astounding fountain, the Buckingham fountain, or a horse and rider, the um, statue there the, by um, Grant Park. And at most, another lion, you know, the statues outside the Art Institute. She's bringing mm-hmm. lots of other public statuary and, and kind of the the kind of bombastic public art symbols of Chicago. She's subtly naming them all through there um, with the Mona Lisa at the head of them and tying this new famous statue into them and really asking this question about them. At the same time, she's not dismissing it. And she's not exactly dismissing them, but she is saying, you know, she is asking a question, I suppose, about what, 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 what's art for? Yeah. What are we, and in particular, what is public art or like these kind of arts, yeah. these kind of art forms that are like, you know, have a, you know, have been become important because they're public art or yeah. become important because they, Someone has decided they're important, like the Mona Lisa, right? Which draws, you know, I don't know, yeah. at this time, it must have been drawing this similar, if not the same amount of crowds that it still draws, right? This idea of like, what are, what is this kind of public, specifically about, I think, this question of the of public art. And I love what you said about, you know, she's not condemning it. She's asking this question, right? Like, you don't really quite know where she stands because she's clearly just kind of seeing 50,000 people come um, to see this this sculpture that frankly no one really likes like you know it's like yeah, kind of yeah. a point of controversy <laughs> when it's unveiled um about what it is why is it special do we want it you know picasso kind of snubs yeah. the city when he shows up he doesn't really show up and so this sense of like well what are we here to do and then i love this last stanza because this one i read differently every time i read this poem the observe the talk hold tall cold of a flower which is as innocent and as guilty as meaningful and as meaningless as any other flower in the western field Um, because now we're out of art right we're in the flower we're looking at nature now and say well we ascribe all of these things to it right we call it beauty beautiful but is it beautiful maybe it's not right and then this last line of the western field which seems to be both a reference to an actual field but also thinking about the history of western art and the western field Mm -hmm. of aesthetics uh, which again, it doesn't answer any question. It doesn't answer anything. It just kind of raises this question about how things come to mean and come to make meaning for for us. Another kind of us or another yeah. kind of we poem here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And like, who? And what's interesting here is like, where if without wishing to harp on a theme, but I'm going to do it anyway. That like, if that we that starts kitchenette building is one trying to stake a claim for a very particular identity there's particular people articulating that that we at the start of that poem and through that poem here it's it's also asking like who are we <laughs> who's the we yes. that this picasso is for yes. the people the 50,000 who show up the people who like the symphony the mayor you know it's certainly not for the people who sit at home with a cold beer there's an interview with her where she someone accuses her of satirizing people who would rather be at home with a cold beer and she's like no 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 not at all i'm like She's like, I don't drink beer. I drink Pepsi, but I like to sit at home most of the time drinking it. And I got, I'm one of these people who doesn't go look at art, you know, and I really like that about her. Like, you know, so is she part of the we or not part of the we? She's part of the we because she's been asked to write the poem. That this is a, a work of art claiming to speak publicly, but is unsure of is unsure of what its public is or who its public is or why it's speaking to that public. There's a Mike Royko column about this, this statue um, where he says something like uh, it's, it's the perfect statue for the city of Chicago because it looks like various things and nothing all at the same time. And it's, you know, there's some element of that attitude slightly less cynically 
in this poem, I think, as well. Yeah, I think that's really well put. You I mean you kind of feel her as 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 the as a mediator in this poem, like trying yeah. to really sit with the public observation, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's her role as kind of critic and convener here is not to have the ultimate judgment, but try to be the way in to the to this artwork, right? For for the for for this kind of mass we. Yeah, it's that capturing a way of viewing a moment or a situation or viewing people viewing it is happening again here. And I guess that's also one thing that of many that's happening in the wall. Maybe we turn to that for a short time as well. Yes. And I don't know if it's helpful to give a little context because um, it's, yes, please. I yeah. think it's helpful. Um, so the wall, you know, it's, it's an amazing moment in history to think about the Chicago Picasso, which is the poem is dated August 15th and the wall is August 27th, both from 1967. So the wall um, is a reference to the unveiling of the wall of respect, which was a multimedia mural that was painted in Bronzeville by a collective of artists, photographers, featuring all of these different figures from black history. Um, artists... I should point out, sorry, if you don't mind me interrupting just mm-hmm. for a moment, I should point out that people, Please. if they want to look at, they can look it up on, and you can find it online really easily. If you just. Yes. Um... And they, you sh- they, people should. Um, it's, and there have been a lot <laughs> yeah, of different uh, recent works, recent books about it. And it's because it doesn't exist anymore. We only know what the wall looks like from photographs of the, of the moment it was painted over. Um, so it doesn't actually exist anymore, but it was this kind of really amazing moment where all the kind of amazing arts leaders uh, in Chicago in the sixties in this moment and this kind of black power movement, uh, kind of a different, and that Brooks was very much thinking about and, and, and participating in, um, in the, in the late sixties. Um, so in the late 1960s, Gwendolyn Brooks is also making a turn in her own poetry and her own politics. She's starting to be more interested in black arts, black power movements. People call this period the, a break in her poetry, but scholars really debate whether it's a break or how to describe what happens in the 60s. So these poems are still part of In the Mecca. They're the poems that come at the end of the long, there's the long poem, and then there's After the Mecca, and there are poems in there. This is the last, these are the last poems she'll publish with Harper's before she moves to a Black-owned press, um, Third World Press, where all of her poems will be published after after this period. And so you can kind of hear in Chicago Picasso in the Wall, her exploring these these kind of changes to the ways that she's thinking about black self-determination, black aesthetics. Um, she kind of herself talks about this period where she's she's writing more for black audiences specifically. Um, and you can kind of hear that in what's going on in the wall, which is again, a kind of pu- di- very different kind of public art piece made by black artists in a black community for black viewers primarily. Um, and so that's, I think, helpful context in, in knowing what this, the occasion of, of this poem. Okay, so should I read it? I'll read it. The wall, August 27, 1967, for Edward Christmas. And then another quote at the beginning. The side wall of a typical slum building on the corner of 43rd and Langley became a mural communicating black dignity. End quote from Ebony. A drum, drum, drum. Humbly we come. South of success and east of gloss and glass are sandals, flower cloth, grave hoops of wood or gold, pendant from black ears, brown ears, reddish brown and ivory ears. Black boy men, black boy men on roofs, fist out black power, vow a little black stampede and African images of brass and flower swirls, fists out, black power, tightens pretty eyes, leans back on mother country and is tracked, is treatise through her perfect and tight teeth. Women in wool hair chant their poetry. Phil Corin gives us messages and music made of developed bone and polished and honed cult. It is the hour of tribe and of vibration, the day-long hour. It is the hour of ringing 
Rouse, a ferment festival. On 43rd and Langley, black furnaces resent ancient legislatures of ploy and scruple and practical gelatin. They keep the fever in, fondle the fever. All worship the wall. I mount the rattling wood. Walter says, she is good, says, she, our sister, is. In front of me, hundreds of faces, red, brown, brown, black, ivory, yield me hot trust. Their yay and their announcement that they are ready to rile the high-flung ground. Behind me, paint, heroes. No child has defiled the heroes of this wall, this serious appointment, this still wing, this skull, this flute, this heavy light, this hinge. An emphasis is paroled. The old decapitations are revised. The dispossessions beakless. And we sing. So this is a very, yeah, as you say, a very different, it's a very different work of art, a very different dedication of a work of art. And the, the sound of the poem, even, I talked about sound early on in our conversation. And this is one of the poems I had in mind, just like the sound of this poem is so exciting. There's something different happening in, in the way she's thinking about art. Uh, and and the public work of art in this poem than there was in Chicago Picasso. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it just feels different, right? Like um, mm-hmm. it's participatory. She is in the crowd, but she is also speaking, spoken to by the crowd and by the conveners, right? It is much more about a happening with names and faces mm-hmm. that she can name and she can actually call out to um, that she's a part of it. Um, even as there are these kind of abstractions of color and who's there and whose faces you see and these details, right? That could be anybody, but there's a kind of intimacy to this publicness that feels very different than what's happening in the, in the Chicago Picasso. Yeah. And it's, it's got that sense of community again, that, exists in the Bronzeville poems, in the Mecca, that whatever else is going on, what this is is a poem about community and about the interactions of that community. The the child, no no boy has yet def- has has defaced this other this work of art. Other works of art are do get defaced. There's the building that gets defaced in another of her poems, um, Boy Breaking Glass. Yeah. And there's people, there's no people in the Picasso poem. Yeah, there's no people. There's, there's only yeah. questions and there's concepts. Only, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's lots of different reasons for this, but this is where the, the, the public art has an obvious meaning, has an obvious purpose, has an obvious feel to it that she feels connected to, she feels a part of, as you say, she's literally comes out of the crowd in the in the, in the the poem and she's literally a part of it and that there's a... It's an answer, I suppose, in some ways to some of those big questions in the Picasso poems. Like, well, not every work of art is a work of art. You know, this this wall almost is something that we might hug in a way mm-hmm. that we wouldn't hug the Mona Lisa. It's something that we have a different attitude uh, towards than a statue of a Native American on a horse in the park that we wonder why it's there. Or the lions in front of the Art Institute that are just kind of there to show us that it's expensive or the or the fountain that has a different I don't even know what the fountain is supposed to mean a lot of water um like but these like you know the Picasso that we're not sure whether it's a bird or a woman or what like like this is art that we know what it means like these are these there's people there's heroes on this wall and they're heroes that we have a direct meaning to that 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 perhaps say something about those dreams that we um that we wonder not well about in kitchenette building, here's a kind of public work giving an answer to that. And I suppose the poems, her poems in general are kind of doing that kind of work. She's not necessarily thinking about that so self-consciously in this poem, but it's a way of thinking about framing something about how her, her poetry works. In Chicago Picasso, right, it becomes this occasion for thinking about the nature of art. Uh, we're not really seeing the Picasso for very long in the, at all, right? She's not really interested in describing the piece of work. It's not ekphrastic in that way. It's kind of this occasion for thinking more about what public art should be and how to feel about art in the Western field, right? And this poem is so dedicated on the it is an occasional poem, right? In the truest mm-hmm. sense, right? It's like trying to capture what it felt like to be there in the moment, right? The literal sounds, um, what she's seeing, what's on the wall, the fever and the tenor. 
manner, right? She's not trying to do more than that, really, in this poem. This poem is so much about what does it mean? It's not about a celebration of the piece itself. It's a celebration of what that piece is meaning to in the moment of its unveiling and its dedication. Whereas the Chicago Picasso feels like it's got a, you know, it's um, there's like a trick there where you think it's this dedication poem, but actually it's, it's not about, it's not about the Chicago Picasso at all. But this is so deeply about just what it means to be, not, not even to see the wall, but to see it in this specific context. Yeah. So that it's interesting that actually it, the the context the, the same context that is the subject of the poem in the wall is all relegated to the Sun Times quotation and a couple yeah. of parentheses underneath it, like before the poem even gets going in Chicago Picasso, like Daly's up there in the quotation, the symphony is there, like all that kind of the fifty thousand and whatever they were doing, we never find out about because it it's just a report. Whereas here we get the report, which is about the work of art. And then we get the feeling of the unveiling and 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 the life that's happening, the celebration that's happening, which is not part of the other poem. They're, mm-hmm. they're almost like one of them is the other one turned inside out. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I want to thank Adrian Brown for taking so much time to to talk about the. the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks. We've talked about a handful of poems. There's so many more we could have talked about. And I hope sure. that it's given listeners like uh, a little window into Gwendolyn Brooks and some excitement to go and track down more of her poems because um, there's so much more we could have talked about here. Um, thank you very much for joining me on the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast, Adrienne Brown. Thanks for having me. It was such a, it was such a fun time. Um, we'll put links to Gwendolyn Brooks reading from some of her poetry in the show notes for this episode. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.